Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Welcome. Today we're going to talk about should we accept status quo for how we treat PNH. Um, once again, uh, I'm Dr. Bamika Patel from Prisma Health, uh, University of South Carolina uh, in Greenville, and this, I'm here with Dr. Eileen Whites. I am Dr. Eileen Whites from the University of Southern California. So, Dr. Whites, you know we know with PNH being a rare disease and there's delays to diagnosis. How, however, now the treatment paradigm for PNH is expanding. How do you um, optimize, you know, I guess, categorize patients now with that we have C5s, we have Ecoluzumab, Rabeluzumab, and now we have a C3 that was recently approved uh, for PNH, uh, Pexetocopeland. How do you um, sequence the complement inhibitors in treating your patients um, outside of insurance dilemmas that we have now? How do you um, prefer to um, treat your patients with newly diagnosed um, PNH? Well, I think this is an area that remains a little... Um uncertain at the present time. Um, there is a large body of literature that's published on C5 inhibition um, and a much smaller body of literature that's available on C3 inhibition with pegcetacoplan. Um, we have recently started patients on pegcetacoplan who were naive. Um, the we're hoping that the data will be from the print study will be published soon. Um, and uh, which does suggest that you can treat patients upfront with a C3 inhibitor with significant benefit. Uh, but that remains to be seen. There's no head to head trial. So it's completely a matter of one, how you want to approach the patient and two, how the patient feels about treating themselves because pegcetacoplan is dosed at home subcutaneously twice or three times a week. So it gives the patient, on, on one hand, it gives the patient some flexibility. They can treat themselves. On the other hand, uh, rabulizumab is given once every eight weeks and represents a huge convenience for the patient. But, and then, and they don't have to come to the hospital, can be done at home. So let, why don't you tell us your experience with um, treatment with these agents? So from my experience um, with C5 inhibitors, um, predominantly because recently pegcetacoplan was, so normally because there's long-term data with the C5 inhibitors, um, you know, definitely with the approval of rabeluzumab, we've been able to make it more convenient for our younger patients and even our patients that go to work to come in every eight weeks to get it. I, and I personally like the, them coming in every eight weeks because you can monitor them closely. Um, I have a handful of patients that were on C3 inhibition, uh, inhibition therapy with pexetocoplan. Um, and they were all compliant um, and they did find the ease of uh, administration at home. But I think uh, the main concern I had with that was sometimes, you know, if they did miss a dose, how do you compensate for that? And there were some patients that accidentally missed a dose. It wasn't intentional. 
And so keeping a close eye on those patients that are at self-administration at home was one of the big key things in clinical practice that I kept maintaining uh, to make sure um, they did not have any breakthrough hemolysis um, while on therapy and they were getting adequate control of their um, PNH on therapy. Um, so I think it's exciting that we have three drugs now that we can use for patients. Um, but to, your, um, to Dr. White's, as you mentioned, I do think that we need some upfront data from the PRINCE trial for us to know that, hey, pexidocopelin is equally as efficacious as upfront C5 therapy for patients so that we can use it. Um, as uh, you know, we know that there's going to be patients who don't want to come in every eight weeks also to the clinic uh, and want to be able to use therapies at home and follow up with their doctors um, and make sure their labs are doing well. Although some patients can get their bravu, their bravulizumab at home. That is true, um, yeah. Or other patients, because of their insurance status, they have to go to an infusion center. Right. Um, but there are some technical challenges sometimes with arranging home care, mm -hmm. and that can be difficult, whereas with Pegsetocoplan, it's all set up. The biggest issue is what if they have breakthrough on the PEG-CETACO-PLAN? And um, there is at least a plan to, in, to treat the patients with, um, with IV PEG-CETACO-PLAN when they come to the hospital, but that's not an approved therapy. So I think how to treat them for breakthrough is still somewhat unclear with a peg set of plan and it, you don't want to have to mix drugs. Agreed. And I think that has been a challenge. And, you know, we've, uh, you know, definitely with my uh, past experience, we've had uh, patients who are on C3 inhibition with breakthrough. How do you, um, how do you uh, clinically manage those patients? Right. And to your point, we don't want to mix C3 and C5 inhibition. I get a personally, I'm like, that's a lot of complement inhibition from two different angles. And you worry about the risk of infections over time. Also, even though they're optimally vaccinated, um, but you don't want to have patients on two therapies. You definitely want to have them on one therapy to making sure that they're adequately controlled over time. And um, definitely, I agree with you. And I think with the IV formulation, that'll be something interesting to see the data for that, how that does help with the breakthrough hemolysis of patients on C3 inhibition. Right. I think there's just no data. And, and, I know my hospital pharmacy and administration not going to let me just give IV pegs at a co-plan without some data. Right. Agreed. So I think that's very, um, I think that's a big issue. But you could treat, continue to treat with the patient's own therapy mm -hmm. and with C3, with the pegs at a co-plan. You just give it every day until they stop hemolyzing. Exactly. Okay. No, agreed. And, um, so what are your thoughts in regards to, so now um, when you look at responses for patients with PNH on C5 therapy or C3, what, you know, we have the risky counter criteria that we use for response to complement inhibition. How is it incorporated in clinical practice for you? Because I, I don't feel like patients always meet one of those categories. They're somewhere in between those categories. What are your thoughts about that? Well, most of the patients do get a response. And, and I think that the classification is somewhat um, limited in that um, most of the patients do have some form of response. There are very few that really don't respond. It's really that 20% of patients who 
have um, remained transfusion dependent. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty dramatic. They, they, they declare themselves very early. Right. So you know that that patient, if they have ongoing uh, um, need for transfusion, they will never respond to a C5 inhibitor. Right. So you might as well switch them right then and there to a C3 inhibitor okay. or down the road, factor B or factor D. Okay. So um, I think that those, the blocking the alternative pathway will be dramatic for those patients. Right. And, you know, a couple of things uh, just to touch up on it um, and that some of the topics we've talked about. So patients, you know, for patients that have, um, you know, that have been uh, initiated on C5 therapies, um, and, you know, we know about 20 to 30% of those patients may have ongoing symptomatic anemia or extravascular hemolysis with C3 deposition. How long do you wait while they're on C5 therapy before you switching them out to a C3 inhibition, C3 inhibitors such as pexidocopolin? Well, first of all, all patients on a C5 inhibitor will have evidence of extravascular clearance. Mm -hmm. It's just that they may not be anemic. They have adequate marrow reserves. They're able to keep up. They don't, their hemoglobins will be in a reasonable range and they don't experience the fatigue and all of those other complications or the thrombotic complications. Right. So um, that being said, uh, if I have a patient who remains transfusion dependent or their transfusion requirements increase even more, mm -hmm. then I will think about switching them. Got it. Okay. And how much time should you give? I don't think there's any, uh, there are any rules to that, but pretty clear that the longest you should go would be three months. Most, if you're using RavU, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's going to stick around for eight weeks. Right. So then you give the patient eight weeks. If they have ongoing transfusion requirements, I think it's probably not going to get better. And another topic, you know, that's not discussed much, especially with um, the uh, approval of the complement inhibitors, is the role of allogeneic stem cell transplant. How often do you refer your patients to bone marrow transplant uh, for PNH? Um, because I think it's a comp it's with classical PNH and you have PNH arising from aplastic anemia. When do you consider um, referring your patients to allogeneic bone marrow transplant? So most patients with PNH have some component of less than adequate bone marrow response, which is why they, they may stay anemic. Not everybody. But in those in whom aplasia, if they present with a small PNH clone and they're aplastic, we would probably get them started. And then with um, treatment for their aplastic anemia and see if their PNH clone expands. In those in whom it expands, then they would go on treatment. Right. Um, but I do refer patients with PNH for uh, transplant, particularly if they're really young um, and they have a prominent aplastic component. Okay. Um, I think for patients who have pure hemolytic PNH, classical PNH, 
I really don't refer them unless they fail to respond to treatment. Yes, and I agree with you on that. Um, usually all my younger younger patients and up to like even older patients with aplastic, PNH, any component of that combination of that, I refer everyone to transplant, at least get an evaluation and depending on their response and assess if they need to go to transplant or not. Well, yeah, we have done, um, two, I think two patients who were over 50 mm -hmm. got transplanted because they had good matches, oh, wow. sibling matches. So, uh, but that is relatively rare. But anybody who's young, they're going to have a lifetime of this disease. Why do you want to go there? Right. With the potential for complications. So I would recommend those patients be evaluated for transplant. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Weitz, for this dynamic discussion. It's always great to talk to other uh, experts in the field. And uh, really appreciate you being here. And this will be your uh, end of our episode. Thank you very much. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.